The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Taking the Next Steps with Next Generation BTK Inhibitors in CLL, MCL, and DLBCL. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash EVF 860. Downloadable slides are also available. Hello. And welcome to Taking the Next Steps with Next Generation BTK Inhibitors in CLL, Mantle Cell Lymphoma, and Diffuse Large B-Cell Lymphoma. I am Dr. John Bird from the University of Cincinnati. I am pleased to be joined by my colleague, Dr. Cami Maddox from The Ohio State University. Today we are going to explore some recent developments that can inform the use of next generation BTK inhibitors in the management of different types of B-cell malignancies. Throughout this, we will focus on the new evidence emerging from the 2022 American Society of Hematology meeting that occurred in December. After each segment, we'll also discuss practical points that may help you in applying some of the findings to your practice. Let's begin. This slide depicts the current state of BTK inhibitors in the United States for CLL, SLL, and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Since their uh, initial improvement in 2014, we see two other second-generation BTK inhibitors, acalabrutinib and xanabrutinib, have been approved across multiple indications, including CLL, mantle cell lymphoma, marginal zone lymphoma, and Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia. In the background, we have third-generation non-covalent inhibitors, pertabrutinib and nemtabrutinib, heading forth to clinical trials in phase three clinical trials. When we look at BTK inhibitor options for the therapy of CLL, looking at the NCCN regimens that are approved, we see for upfront therapy, both acalabrutinib and xanabrutinib as monotherapy are approved and recommended. And obinutuzumab with the addition of acalabrutinib is included. Say, ibrutinib has fallen to a recommended therapy, but not preferred, in part because of some of the data that we will show later. Clearly, as we look at second-line therapies for BTK inhibitors and mantle cell lymphoma, we see that these are widely applied and applicable to three different drugs. The first-generation agent, ibrutinib, plus or minus rituximab, xanabrutinib, and acalabrutinib. Based upon data that Dr. Maddox will show, there's evidence of this, the use of uh, BTK inhibitors for second-line consolidation, and third-line when given potentially uh, as part of uh, CAR T-cells. Unfortunately, while there was very promising data in DLBCL, say, generated from several different groups, their, you know, their application is relatively, you know, is relatively limited to non-transplant candidates where these would be used in certain circumstances as in the non-germinal center B-cell lymphoma group. Well, there clearly is a setting uh, for continuing to improve the BTK inhibitors. You know, ibrutinib was, our, was the first generation and really impacted so many different B-cell malignancies and the natural history of them. But there, is, there are side effects that come forth with the additional targets that ibrutinib hits. Acalabrutinib and xanabrutinib, by being more selective in second generation covalent inhibitors, by not inhibiting EGFR and other targets, were shown to have better toxicity. 
This is further exemplified by the non-covalent inhibitors now in clinical trial, pertubertinib uh, and nemnitabertinib, that, that again, hit a subset of our targets that ibrutinib does and ultimately have you know, a different safety profile. Why is this important? We can see in CLL where, say, a, a good number of patients that go on ibrutinib as initial therapy discontinue due to adverse events. Say, although chemoimmunotherapy for, you know, for mantle cell lymphoma is beneficial, we still have a lot of you know, room to improve patients with this diagnosis, particularly patients who progress early in therapy after receiving chemotherapy, and that's six to 24 or less than six months in response or progressing during you know, the initial therapy. And as we look at you know, in the modern rituximab area, patients with DLBCL continue to do quite poorly when they, you know, when they relapse, particularly if they're primary refractory. We, we clearly need therapies here. And so as we move forward with the new BTK inhibitors, you know, the second and third generation and combining them, hopefully we will see this improve. So I, I'd like to introduce some of the new findings that come forth from the 2002 ASH meet, the 2022 ASH meeting, where we saw extended follow-up on many studies and also um, early results of randomized comparisons of the new uh, of the second-generation BTK inhibitors. This first study um, presented at ASH uh, say summarizes the long-term benefit of a calibrutinib therapy with six years of follow-up. And this study, you know, this study showed a 72-month progression-free survival of 87% when ibrutinib, I'm sorry, acalibrutinib was used as, you know, as initial therapy. The outcome, you know, the outcome, say, of patients was quite, you know, was quite good, um, say, and discontinuations were, you know, were quite common in this, you know, in this setting. Similarly, as we look at acalabrutinib and, you know, and its use and its role as compared to ibrutinib, a study published earlier, yes, say, in the Journal of Clinical Oncology, the Elevate Relapse and Refractory Study actually compared ibrutinib to acalabrutinib and showed essentially identical progression-free survival with a hazard ratio of one. This was an inferior, or this was a study to look at for non-inferiority and it clearly hit that endpoint. What was notable though, was the improved safety. Acalabrutinib caused as a, as a more selective BTK inhibitor had much less atrial fibrillation and flutter. No patients discontinued because, because of this. And, and actually there was a higher, you know, you know there was a higher frequency of uh, say, of a, you know, a fib and a flutter among patients that didn't have this before, suggesting you know, you know, suggesting that you know that there is more of a drug effect of atrial fibrillation with ibrutinib, likely related to the SARC uh, kinase that it you know that it hits. When we look at other side effects of of um, acalabrutinib versus ibrutinib, we also saw hypertension was much less and bleeding events were much less. The you know, say an analysis following from the study that Dr. Seymour presented at this ASH 
used a novel adverse event burden score that was de designed from one of the earlier chemoimmunotherapy versus uh, ibrutinib or ibrutinib plus rituximab. And this, you know, this looks at overall burden of side effects over the course of administration of therapy. So it, it, it doesn't, it takes an average of time of exposure. Um, and what this study showed was there's a highly significantly decreased frequency of several key um, adverse events, including flutter, AFib and flutter, hypertension, hemorrhage, and musculoskeletal. Really the only thing that was more common with acalabrutinib, say, say in terms of you know in terms of the burden score over time, was diarrhea and headache. A very exciting study that was presented you know, by Jennifer Brown was the Alpine study, and this had been presented before at EHA. And this this slide shows the the design of the study. This is um, uh, giving giving uh, zanabrutinib versus ibrutinib in relapsed and refractory patients. Um, who or or who had had at least one prior therapy, and it was a straight randomization. The study had a primary endpoint of overall response, non-inferiority, and then they could look at superiority. And then the key secondary endpoints were progression-free survival and incidence of atrial fibrillation. The uh, no say the um, response rate again. The primary endpoint was uh, was presented at an earlier meeting. You know with you know with zanabrutinib having a higher overall response rate in meeting its primary endpoint. Say, Dr. Brown presented the progression-free survival, which it had been extended, as, say, at, from, from the initial planned analysis to 29.6 months, where you know, progression-free survival was improved on, on zanabrutinib as compared to, uh, to ibrutinib. And you know, this was, this was you know, a significant secondary endpoint. Now, what we what we care about with all of these these second generation you know, BTK inhibitors is uh, you know are they safer as well? And this uh, you know at at the meeting we saw that there was a much uh, lower frequency of atrial fibrillation with zanabrutinib as compared to ibrutinib you know over the time period uh, followed, and this is depicted looking at the cumulative event rate. Similarly, other adverse events. That you know we don't see very commonly with it, with ibrutinib, but when they occur, are it can be devastating. You know such uh, you know such as heart you know, you know heart failure, ventricular fibrillation, infarct. None of essentially none of these were seen with uh, you know with zanabrutinib, suggesting just like acalabrutinib, this is a more safer drug you know, based probably upon its selectivity. Well, how do the two of these compare? This is sort of something. That I'm, I'm always, I, I'm, I've been asked almost continuously since, and would I use one versus the other? And you know, you know and say this sort of summarizes one study was done much earlier than the other. Say the the the, the Elevate relapse refractory study that looked at acalabrutinib, is say had longer follow up as compared to the Alpine study. It, say the, the the elevate relapse and refractory patients had a median higher number of treatments and you know approximately 51% in one study was 17p versus 23% in the other you know and when you look at the responses across comp comparing uh, acalabrutinib is 81% it's 86% with with zanabrutinib the hazard ratio for survival even though even though the yeah, the uh, 
acalabrutinib group, say, had much higher risk patients was very close, 0.82 to 0.76. Now, so when I look at this, when I, when I look at this, where do I consider the use of each of these agents? You know, I, I often want to give obinutuzumab with acalabrutinib to get patients to a CR. There's data with this. There's not data with that with xanabrutinib. And I say xanabrutinib still has a fairly high frequency of hypertension. So patients who have hypertension and obviously patients who are, if I start with xanabrutinib and they're intolerant to it, I would give that. Xanabrutinib finds its place in patients who have significant migraine headaches or who may require aggressive therapy for gastroesophageal reflux. Although there's a new formulation of acalabrutinib that can be considered for this as well. And then obviously patients who are intolerant of acalabrutinib. And there was data presented at, at, you know, you know, at ASH related to this where xanabrutinib works very effectively there. Let's move on to some of the second generation BTK combination and non-covalent options that were presented at ASH. First of all, you know, we is, say we see uh, a nice update date from you know, Matt Davids showing we're looking at the the Elevate treatment naive study that there are a variety of groups, you know, particularly the IGVH unmutated patients that really appear to gain benefit in terms of progression free survival by adding obinutuzumab as compared to to um, to acalabrutinib alone, and this benefit may be seen in 17p patients as well. Although, you know, say the hazard ratios do cross. And you know, as, as I said earlier, in most of my patients that I give a calibrutinib, unless they're infirm or have a contraindication to giving a CD20 antibody, I give that. The, an update as well from Dr. You know, say, do, say Dr. David's um, study of time-limited acalabrutinib, venetoclax, and, and obinutuzumab was, was presented. And again, in, the, in a high-risk patient population, they're showing high CRs can be obtained with this regimen on the you know on the order of about 50% and you know this goes across all groups and this you know this study in part you know led to the design of the phase 3 magic study that has has been initiated and will enroll 750 patients around the country looking at say comparing AV or acalabrutinib and venetoclax to venetoclax uh, obinutuzumab. And uh, say, this is a highly, inno highly innovative study, a lot of excitement uh, for this and this approach moving forward. There's also data that was presented uh, at ASH related to combining xanabrutinib with both venetoclax, you know, the Sequoia RMD, which showed, again, you can get really, really high responses uh, and a good number of CRs with this, you know, with this combination in 17P patients. And then say Beijing is developing a second generation BCL2 inhibitor that has pharmaceutical properties that might be beneficial to, you know, to, for a shorter exposure. And they presented a phase one study combining their new BCL2 inhibitor BGB11417 with xanabrutinib. And again, 15 relapse and refractory patients, high response rates, 40% CR rate. And, you know, intolerability of this looked really, you know, looked really good. So keep our eyes on this. The Bruin study, which is, it was updated as well. And the Bruin study gives pertabrutinib. And this is a very, very large study, which has treated hundreds of patients. And 
Uh, what was what was discussed at the meeting? An update of the high risk patients, particularly those who had, who had discontinued uh, BTK inhibitors uh, due to progression, and you know the data in both the BTK uh, treated patients, and that's that would be a covalent BTK inhibitor. This is a non covalent one, uh, and the BTK inhibitor plus BCL two inhibitors. The response rates were very respectable. Seven, you know, say almost 80%, almost 80% when we, you include PR and PRL, and the patients that have persistent lymphocytosis with partial response otherwise don't really care, that, you know, and they probably do just as well. I think this was really exciting data showing the progression-free survival in this very high-risk group. Uh, it was 19.6 months. So after you finish a therapy that might have, uh, you know, say, a median remission duration of six to eight years, you could go on this and gain and gain benefit. Again, very promising data. Dr. Wojak updated the Bellwave study, uh, say, and and this is this is with uh, nemtabrutinib or ARQ five three one as it was formerly called, and again in patients who are double ref who are double refractory showed you know a respectable 58% response with confidence intervals overlapping with you know, say the uh, you know the data with you know, pertubrutinib active across other groups as well and the duration of response the, you know the duration of response in this group again was quite res was quite respectable very similar to what's seen with pertubrutinib so we have two two um, you know Third generation covalent BTK inhibitors showing very promising results in this patient, you know, in this highly refractory patient population. So, what are what are some take home messages about um, some of our newer BTK inhibitors in uh, you, know, you know in CLL? You know, I think this the safety is as we have developed better therapies where patients can stay on therapy for a long time has really become important. We have to remember that most of our CLL patients are old, have comorbid conditions, cardiovascular risk factors, and you know, so having drugs that are more safe in that setting is, uh, you know, is important. And we're fortunate to have two second-generation BTK inhibitors, acalabrutinib and xanabrutinib, that now are supported by head-to-head -head studies in major, in major, large phase three studies, I'm asked often. I, I, I was involved more with acalabrutinib than xanabrutinib's uh, development, but at which drug is better? And this is really, this is really a, a, my answer back would be: it's a beauty contest, and I would say it's like a universal beauty contest where the winner is really in the eye of the individual judge and the application of the drug because both these drugs are really, really good. And in picking picking one over the other, they're both good. Acalabrutinib has longer follow-up, say, and that's really the only thing that distinguishes these, these two other than the small points that I, point out, I pointed out. BTK, BCL2 combinations, you know, do they have a role in 17PCLL? Certainly, although you know, the cap, you know, the Captivate and GLOW study led to EMA approval of ibrutinib plus venetoclax. It's a 2B indication in the NCCAN guidelines. Uh, and right now, say emerging data with acalabrutinib and xanabrutinib shows similar results when you combine with BCL2 inhibitors. I would just, 
have a lot of caution with using these combinations outside of clinical trials because we have very short, a very short long-term follow-up. These, you know, these together can be more immunosuppressive, more immunosuppressive, particularly particularly venetoclax, and that that until we have long-term follow-up, you know, say with more than surrogate endpoints, comparing this to chemoimmunotherapy, we need to be um, cautious in their use outside of clinical trials. What about the non-covalent inhibitors? Where do they fit? Where are they, where are they going and fit clinically? Um, say, based upon current evidence, these look to be highly efficacious. I think you know, in their initial application, they likely will fall in the relapse and refractory setting where, you know, where uh, we use them in double refractory patients first, because that's where the randomized studies are probably going to read out first. Both of these are active in Richter's transformation. And, you know, and really I'm honored to be on the, on this call with somebody that, that's given these drugs in mantle cell lymph, in mantle cell lymphoma and large cell lymphoma and CLL as well. And I'd, I'd really be interested to hear where, now, Dr. Uh, is, say, Dr. Maddox, where you think um, it, it, these two, you know, say both the covalent and the non-covalents fall in your excitement for them uh, in, uh, in lymphoma. Thanks, Dr. Bird. Uh, so yeah, we'll go through updates from ASH 2022, new developments with BTK inhibitors in mantle cell lymphoma, and then transition to diffuse large B cell lymphoma. Um, the first abstract from ASH that I'll present actually is looking at data with the first generation BTK inhibitor ibrutinib, but I think that this is important to discuss, one, because it was uh, a major update in mantle cell lymphoma in part uh, presented as part of the plenary session, and two, because as we've seen um, in Dr. Bird's presentation in CLL, where we see ibrutinib, we see some of the second generation BTK inhibitors follow, and so I think this will matter um, for the, their use in the future as well. So the triangle study um, was a randomized three-arm study looking at patients with untreated mantle cell lymphoma who were candidates for aggressive chemoimmunotherapy in consolidation with autologous stem cell transplant. Um, this trial randomized patients to one of three arms, Standard treatment, which was RCHOP, RDHEP for six cycles, followed by autologous stem cell transplant, and then observation. It's important to note that rituximab maintenance became a standard after transplant during this uh, trial enrollment, and so it was amended so that all three arms patients received rituximab maintenance um, and not just observation. The second arm added ibrutinib to chemoimmunotherapy for six cycles followed by autologous stem cell transplant, and then maintenance ibrutinib, and again, rituximab. And then the third arm incorporated ibrutinib into standard chemoimmunotherapy, but eliminated the transplant and treated patients with ibrutinib and then rituximab maintenance. This trial did show that there was a benefit to adding ibrutinib during induction and maintenance, plus or minus autologous stem cell transplant for these treatment-naive patients. So there was, um, it was showing that auto plus ibrutinib was superior to autologous consolidation alone in terms of um, freedom from progression. And they, it also showed that the auto was not superior to ibrutinib alone. And when they looked at toxicity, there was less toxicity in the ibrutinib alone arm. 
in both arms with ibrutinib containing regimens, overall survival was improved. There's a lot of interest that has gone into chemo-free regimens in mantle cell lymphoma. Um, so the second abstract is from Dr. Rowan looking at uh, the chemo-free regimen of rituximab in combination with the second-generation BTK inhibitor acalabrutinib and lenalidomide. Um, this was actually built on Dr. Rowan's study of the combination of R-squared or rituximab-lenalidomide in frontline mantle cell lymphoma, showing promises responses in two- and five-year progression-free survival. This was a small study with 24 patients, but it showed that the triplet combination was uh, very effective with 100% of patients responding, including 83% achieving a complete response um, and a high rate of peripheral blood MRD negative remissions, including uh, MRD improving uh, with time. Follow-up is short, but uh, two-year progression-free survival of the 86 0.7% and a two-year survival of 100%. The second trial is another uh, chemo-free induction regimen. So this was actually a two-year update on the triplet combination of rituximab, the second-generation BTK acalabrutinib, in combination with the BCL2 inhibitor venetoclax um, in treatment-naive mantle cell lymphoma. Again, this was a smaller patient study. 21 patients were enrolled with it in this study, uh, but at a follow-up of a little over two years, overall response rate was 100%, with a complete response rate of 90%, and median duration of response, progression-free survival, and overall survival not reached. There are ongoing studies looking at these doublet and triplet combinations in the frontline setting. In addition to the triangle study that was presented at ASH showing a benefit to BTK inhibitor in the frontline treatment for younger patients with mantle cell lymphoma, earlier this year we also saw data from the SHINE trial which showed a benefit in progression-free survival to the addition to um, with ibrutinib to standard BR chemoimmunotherapy in patients who were older or not considered candidates for stem cell consolidation. The ongoing phase three ECHO trial is evaluating the use of the second generation BTK inhibitor acalabrutinib in this population of patients in combination with chemoimmunotherapy. So this trial um, is evaluating patients 65 and older with uh, untreated mantle cell lymphoma and randomizes them in a one-to-one -one fashion to standard treatment with bendamustine rituximab followed by rituximab maintenance uh, versus bendamustine rituximab with the addition of a calibrutinib followed by a calibrutinib and rituximab maintenance. Another abstract presented at ASH was looking at longer follow-up of xanabrutinib in the second line and later setting for relapsed refractory mantle cell lymphoma. Um, so this was a pooled analysis looking at outcomes of patients treated with xanabrutinib for relapsed refractory mantle cell lymphoma and looked at outcomes based on patients who had received only one prior therapy or who had received more than one prior therapy. The median follow-up was close to three years and it showed promising progression-free survival in all patients with a median PFS of 22 months in those patients who had received more than one prior therapies, and then uh, of 27.8 months in those patients who had only received one prior therapy, which was not statistically significant. Um, there was, however, uh, an overall survival benefit with the current follow-up 
for those patients who receive zanabrutinib in the second line setting. The phase 1-2 Bruin trial, which Dr. Bird mentioned and talked about results in CLL, um, this non-covalent BTK inhibitor pertubrutinib has also been evaluated in mantle cell lymphoma um, in the same trial. There was a cohort of patients with mantle cell lymphoma. Um, 134 patients with mantle cell lymphoma have been reported on, the majority of which have received prior BTK and either have gone off um, due to progression or intolerance. The updated data from the original data presentation was presented at ASH. Uh, showing, again, that pertubrutinib was highly active in relapsed refractory mantle cell lymphoma, including in patients who had progressed on or were intolerant to prior uh, BTK inhibitors. So of the 90 patients who had received prior BTK inhibitor, um, the overall response rate was 57.8%, with 20% of patients achieving a complete response. There was a small population of patients who uh, were BTK inhibitor naive in this trial, um, only 14 patients, but very high overall response rate of 85.7% with a 35.7% complete response rate. Now to transition to diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. So diffuse large B-cell lymphoma is actually an area where uh, BTK inhibitors do not have an approval. Um, and the, the progress we've made here, I would say, is not as far along as it is in some of the other B-cell malignancies um, as far as um, trials and approval and activity. However, we have seen um, trials that have shown that this likely has a role, at least in some populations of patients in, in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. So the first-generation BTK inhibitor ibrutinib was initially evaluated um, in a trial of relapsed refractory diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, showing about a 40% overall response rate, with most of those responses occurring in patients um, with non-germinal center type B-cell lymphoma. This actually led to a randomized phase three trial, the Phoenix trial, that uh, randomized patients with newly diagnosed uh, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma to standard treatment with RCHOP versus RCHOP with the addition of ibrutinib. Uh, this was a negative trial. It did not uh, meet its primary endpoint of progression-free survival. However, when um, it was looked into the, the data in the patient populations, it did appear that younger patients benefited from the addition of ibrutinib, whereas older patients um, did not benefit from the addition of ibrutinib. And really, in looking at that data, it looked like that appeared to be a lot due to treatment intensity and toxicity. So patients um, did not receive the same treatment intensity uh, due to toxicities and inability to tolerate um, the RCHOP-ibrutinib combination. Acalabrutinib has also been shown to have efficacy in non-germinal center diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, supporting further study. So to highlight a few abstracts at ASH that look at acalabrutinib, so acalabrutinib added to second-line chemoimmunotherapy in an attempt to uh, improve responses pre-autologous stem cell transplant. So uh, there's a ongoing phase two study evaluating acalabrutinib in combination with rice chemotherapy um, 
in relapse refractory diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. This uh, trial actually has two cohorts of patients. Uh, in cohort A was presented. These patients received a calibrutinib in combination with rice chemotherapy with intent to go to autologous stem cell transplant. Cohort B, which was not presented, um, was patients who received a calibrutinib in combination with chemoimmunotherapy and then a calibrutinib maintenance um, without the intent to go to transplant. So in this population of patients with treated with a calibrutinib in combination with rice, the overall response rate was 74% with a complete response rate of 53%. And uh, 68% of patients uh, did go on to um, the intended autologous stem cell transplant with adverse events similar to what's seen uh, with chemoimmunotherapy. So this suggested, based on historical data, that there may be a benefit to adding BTK inhibitor to chemoimmunotherapy to improve outcomes in order to go to autologous stem cell transplant, um, and more to come on that. Uh, and then I'll highlight the phase three escalade trial, which uh, is testing the uh, R-CHOP in combination with a calibrutinib for non-GC diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Um, so this is enrolling 600 patients uh, age 70 or less with untreated non-GC lymphoma with a primary endpoint of progression-free survival. Patients are allowed to receive one cycle of R-CHOP chemotherapy, um, and they're randomized in a one-to-one -one fashion to R-CHOP placebo versus R-CHOP acalabrutinib. And then the last uh, abstract that I'll highlight here is looking at BTK in combination with rituximab in elderly unfit patients. So the majority of patients with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma are going to be treated with chemoimmunotherapy. However, we know there's a population of patients who are very elderly or unfit with comorbidities uh, that do not allow them to tolerate chemoimmunotherapy. And there's interest in non-chemo combinations uh, in this population of patients. So this is uh, actually a very small study. Only 10 patients were enrolled to this study, uh, but this looked at the combination of rituximab with xanabrutinib for eight cycles, and then xanabrutinib continued until progression. Um, eight of the 10 patients were evaluable for response with an overall response rate of 87.5% and a complete response rate of 62.5%, um, suggesting that there may be um, activity in this population of patients uh, with this combination who are not able to tolerate more intensive therapy. So looking at take-home points uh, for BTK inhibitors in mantle cell lymphoma, I think, you know, in mantle cell lymphoma, we have three approved BTK inhibitors in the second-line setting. Unlike um, some of the other diseases, there's actually never been a head-to-head -head comparison in mantle cell lymphoma. Um, so while the efficacy looks similar, we don't have any randomized data to say one is uh, better or worse from that standpoint. However, I do think that we can extrapolate on safety. We have randomized data in both CLL and Waldenstrom's um, between first and second generation generation BTK inhibitors and can look to the safety and toxicity profiles seen in those trials to apply to our patients with mantle cell lymphoma. Um, and as Dr. Bird mentioned in CLL, I think, um, you know, really looking at the second generation BTK inhibitors, they're typically used more frequently because of their um, overall improved safety profile. 
BTK inhibitors, given their efficacy in the second line setting, there's a lot of interest of in moving them into the frontline setting. And we've now seen uh, both in younger and older patient populations that the addition of ibrutinib to frontline chemoimmunotherapy can improve outcomes in this setting. And I would look to see more um, studies being done with second generation BTK inhibitors in this setting um, where the safety uh, may may play a role in outcomes as well. Um, there's a lot of interest additionally into chemo-free regimens in mantle cell lymphoma, particularly in the frontline setting. Um, there's been a number of small phase one, phase two studies looking at doublet and triplet combinations, including uh, the BTK inhibitors. And I think that this, you know, we'll see more of this and there may be a role in the future for non-chemo combinations. Lastly, like in CLL, I think that the role for the non-covalent BTK inhibitors, at least initially, will be in the setting of patients who progress or are intolerant to um, the covalent BTK inhibitors. But there's an ongoing randomized phase three trial um, that will, you know, inform us if there is a role for the um, the non-covalent. Uh, earlier or, or kind of in place of the covalent inhibitors. Take homes in diffuse large B cell lymphoma. I think it's important to note that we actually do not have FDA approved indication for uh, BTK inhibitors in diffuse large B cell lymphoma. However, there is evidence um, from multiple clinical trials suggesting that these agents are active, particularly in patients with non-germinal center B cell um, lymphoma. Uh, including a frontline trial that suggested maybe some, some benefit in select populations of patients, but that toxicity can be a concern and we will see more to come on combinations of these, uh, B- second generation BTK inhibitors with, uh, chemoimmunotherapy in the setting of diffuse large B cell lymphoma. Dr. Bird, do you have any additional comments or thoughts on BTK inhibitors in mantle cell lymphoma? It's really striking how the field has moved so quickly in a relatively uncommon uncommon disease because because there are only two thousand cases of this a year, correct? And right. and you know so I, the I I think it, what's the the pilot data with the chemo free regimens and the autologous the transplant free regimen and I I wonder. Do you think? Do you think we'll in, in the younger patients and because we, in in CLL we've rapidly moved away from giving chemotherapy at all? Do you see prom, do you see promise in these chemotherapy free regimens for you know younger patients with mantle cell, or do you think we're sort of at a point we're at a point like we were with DLBCL that where you would not you would never think of walking away from CHOP because it cures a subset of patients. I do think in mantle cell, there's going to be a role for chemo-free regimens. I, we're already seeing, you know, a randomized trial looking at BR versus, um, Arzanabrutinib. Uh, and that will obviously Im- inform the potential for that. But I think these are active agents. Of course, mantle cell lymphoma and CLL are different. We don't get the same duration of responses that we do in CLL with mantle cell. But these are still very effective 
effective therapies. And I think combinations using MRD to guide treatment decisions, time-limited therapy, um, and retreatment with these combinations are all things that we can think about uh, as future trials and future things to investigate as we think about are these are we able to use these agents in the frontline setting? Yeah, no, and there was so much there was so much data at the meeting about the bispecifics and the cellular therapy. So it's going to be interesting to see how you know the second generation BTK inhibitors get intermixed with that, you know, with those agents as well. Oh, absolutely. I think the nice thing about you know those agents and the second generation BTK inhibitors is that it it looks like probably those are combinations that we're going to be able to look at and probably earlier in lines of therapy and um, in high-risk patients with mantle cell lymphoma. So we're seeing activity in those patients with TP53 mutations, which are um, our, our highest risk population of patients. You know, I think one of the things about cross, cross-disciplinary groups, often lymphoma doctors practice in a different group than you know, CLL doctors. You know, we're with often with the leukemia doctors, and you know the the BTK inhibitors for cellular, you know, for cellular therapy, particularly CAR T cell therapies, has really taken less effective CARs to being really effective. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see how these agents move into that space. Yes, I agree. Um, do you have any thoughts on BTK in diffuse large B cell lymphoma? Yeah, that's that's quite it's quite provocative to you know again this is this is um, an area where it seems like this would have worked and we'd have a positive phase three study if we'd have had maybe less uh, less um, toxic and and less toxic initial drug and I'm I'm really excited to see what Dr. Sen's study is going to show because you know I think this was. The, the experience with ibrutinib with Richter's was very, you know, disappointing. You know, and acalabrutinib, you see a, a, a hedge of, act, you see a, a suggestion of activity with more, putting more intensive pressure on the target. And, you know, xanabrutinib, you know, xanabrutinib, I'm sorry, xanabrutinib the same, and, and pertabrutinib is fairly active in Richter's transformation. That So it'll be interesting to see if some of these repeat studies with second generation BTK inhibitors, you know, really hit the mark, because it looks like, you know, the biology with Dr. Stout's work, Dr. Stout's work, it was on target, you know, we just maybe didn't have the right drug. Um, I don't, are the lymphoma, are the lymphoma doctors still excited about these agents in, in the setting, Dr. Maddox? Well, yeah, I think, you know, one thing that you highlighted in your talk about not, you know, talk, you really, Toxicity can be a concern with some of these combinations, right? So we don't want to, you know, careful, careful to think about them or use them, especially when there's not an approval. And so I think really when you're looking at these combination studies, particularly in large cell lymphoma, the question really is, is, is it that activity that we're not seeing or really were we limited by the cumulative toxicity? Because when you have a curative component to your treatment, you of course don't want to sacrifice um, that component. Absolutely. And, you know, one thing, one thing that was striking just along the, the area of toxicity was the abstract that was presented 
from the Anderson group in mantle cell lymphoma, where the venetoclacs, the venetoclacs um, combinations, is, say with BTK inhibitors, where they saw, you know, say where they saw, you know, just phenomenal progression-free survival when you when you um, censored for COVID, but they, you know, they had a high death rate when you know patients because of because of COVID and. It's going to be interesting to see with all of these clinical trials. That's that's the most dramatic results I've seen. But all of these clinical trials that we have going with these combinations of whether you know the COVID pandemic is going to confound some of the endpoints because you know, Dr. Wong's study looked really positive with with the censoring, but without the censoring, it was it was um, quite it, you know it, it was quite um, you know as you say less impressive results. Yeah, I mean, I think there's only 21 patients, but there were five deaths due to COVID. So that, you know, obviously is a big proportion of the patients. But I think, you know, that highlights a really good point with these therapies, particularly when we're looking at combining rituximab and B-cell depleting therapy. Um, it COVID has been a real challenge. Um, and I, I don't know if there's a difference in the other combinations or maybe the difference in the two studies was the time during COVID and the supportive care we had available, you know, treatments for COVID. Have you showed that those things help, um, in the later study? But I, I agree, you know, looking into the future and going back to see how COVID, I think it is going to have a big impact on, um, a number of these studies. I'm curious. What's your take on the data that we presented, you know, say from, you know, the CLL at ASH? What, what, where do you see, where do you see the second generation BTK inhibitors going relative to ibrutinib? And I would just be curious about your general thoughts on, on what was at ASH. I think really we've learned a lot and as I said, extrapolated what we've seen in CLL trials to mantle cell lymphoma because you have randomized data and we don't have randomized data between um, the, the different BTK inhibitors. I think it's hard to say, can we say that one is more efficacious or will improve progression-free survival um, in mantle cell because it did in CLL? I don't know that we can extend that, but I certainly do feel like the toxicity data has has been very helpful because I, I do feel like the choice for treatment really has gone to the second generation BTK inhibitors and that's because of, of the toxicity profiles of these agents. I think, you know, it's interesting too, the non-covalent, we know that the reason that patients become resistant to BTK is different in the different diseases, um, but kind of the same same line of thought, it's effective in those patients even if the resistance mechanisms are different. And I see the the role of those non-covalent inhibitors being the same, at least initially, in patients who, you know, progress or are intolerant to covalent BTK inhibitors. Yeah, it does it does set a paradigm it does set a par, uh, paradigm aside that what we wouldn't give if you have developed alkylator resistant disease you wouldn't give another alkylator agent that's of similarity, but you know, in these studies in CLL, and we have we have more patients. That's why we can do say randomized studies in this disease. It take much longer to do a, a mantle cell study, but you know, you see you see staying in the same class, but just that, that seeing the mutation almost with a second generation inhibitor tells you that 
that pathway is still important. And, you know, and pertubertinib and the other non-covalent inhibitors uh, say are just, as, uh, you know, are just as active in that refractory, in that refractory setting. And you know, hopefully, hopefully we'll get, you know, we'll get these across the finish line soon. I say, ibrutinib got approved in mantle cell, you know, first, and it looks like pertubertinib is headed that same, that, you know, that same path, but I, I can't wait to be able to apply these in, you know, in, in my double refractory patients where we don't have anything right now. That concludes our exploration of noteworthy recent evidence with next generation BTK inhibitors in CLL, mantle cell lymphoma, and diffuse large B cell lymphoma. I wanna thank Dr. Maddox for being part of this program with me. And I hope that you found this activity informative and useful in your practice. Thank you very much. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash EVF 860. This activity is supported by an independent educational grant from AstraZeneca.